You're listening to TIP. I was a terrible student and I want to emphasize that because my story with real estate and the message I want to share to people is that I am the most regular guy you will meet. There is no other field where I could have been this successful. It's like real estate is the path for the regular guy. Hey guys, in this week's episode, I sat down to talk with Jeff Higgins about building a self-managed portfolio, his tips for managing his rentals remotely from Florida, his preference for Section 8 tenants, the mental toughness lessons from the poem If by Rudyard Kipling, and his biggest learnings from being a men's success coach. Jeff is a real estate investor with a portfolio of 87 units, 57 in Massachusetts and 30 in Florida. He self-manages these properties and is also a licensed broker in both states. He works as a coach for the Fraternity of Excellence, where he helps men find their inner strength and counsels them on their finances. I really enjoyed hearing about Jeff's real estate journey, but his thoughts on men's coaching, mental toughness, and his reading of the poem If by Rudyard Kipling were particular highlights for me. And so without further delay, let's jump into this week's episode with Jeff Higgins. You are listening to Real Estate 101 by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Patrick Donnelly, interview successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Welcome to the Real Estate 101 Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Donnelly. And with me today is a guest who I've just met on real estate Twitter. He self-manages 87 properties in two different states, Massachusetts and Florida. And he's also involved in coaching for men. I want to welcome to the show, Jeff Higgins. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hi, Patrick. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Love the podcast. Like I have with many of our guests on real estate Twitter, you and I connected and I wanted to learn more about how you're self-managing 87 properties. And then I also wanted to hear more about the coaching for men that you do. But before we dive into all of that, since it's the start of the new year, it's January 6th as we're recording this, I wanted to talk about goals and resolutions. Tell us a little bit about your involvement as a men's success coach. And since it's the beginning of a new year, what you recommend or personally practice in terms of annual goals or end of year reviews. 2023 is just beginning and my personal goals are to make it my best year ever because 2022 was my favorite year I've ever had thus far. And there is no reason for us not to continue to get better each and every year, more improvement. Now, those are all vague. I would advise people in my coaching group to quantify the goals, break them down to smaller objectives. I do a lot of writing down on my goals. I do a lot of writing affirmations personally. I just finished reading The Confident Mind by, um, I believe his name was Nate Zinsler. So I'm on that kick right now. I interviewed a gentleman yesterday. He's been writing his goals down every year for the last 10 years, every day in the morning for the past 10 years. I think he started, and these are lifetime goals. He started off with 11 goals and he's down, he's a young guy, 28 or so, and he's down, he's accomplished six of them already. The power of just setting an intention and goals is, is super important. And he mentioned a book. Adam Grant is the guy's name. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He's a Wharton professor that told him, Set your goals, write them down every morning. It'll make a massive difference in your life. So he did it and it has. Well, it's interesting with real estate. Like I have real estate goals that I would like to continue to expand, but you're one of your previous guests on this show. I saw on Twitter, Moses Kagan wrote about how kind of the market dictates how quickly you're going to grow. If you force growth, you might end up in some bad deals. So as far as my growth with real estate, I kind of let that come to me. I know what I want, but I'm not pushing it. But things I can control, some of the coaching objectives, I'm very excited this year. Me and two of my partners are working on a live event that we're starting from scratch. We're going to uh, bring that live this year. So my goals revolve around that because I can control them, making sure I get the right videographer, sell the most tickets, do the best promotion, that sort of thing. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that's a good point about you can set a goal to whatever, have 20 doors in a year, but it may be a really bad idea. Exactly. As Moses said, how'd you get started into coaching? What was the impetus for that? I was fortunate that I joined a group looking for some guidance, looking for just what's missing outside in the world. A lot of men are missing brotherhood. Like you grow up in your own sports teams or a lot of guys were in the military and then you leave it and you don't have real guys you can um, bounce ideas off of and hold you accountable. So I joined the group looking for that. There's a really phenomenal leader in the group. The guy's named Zach Small. He started the group and it's grown into this amazing thing where, you know, I joined the group, I put in the work. I got the feedback I needed 
And uh, now, now I'm more in the role of a mentor where I get the new guys where they need to go. Through that process, I found a lot of satisfaction. Real estate's been fun, but at some point, I, I want to help people grow. And it's been extremely satisfying. So I spend a lot of time, probably more time in the fraternity of excellence than I do on my real estate at this point. And those are my major goals going forward. I want to hear more about the financial challenge that I think you led with the Fraternity of Excellence. Talk to us about that. I read that guys had amazing results from it. What did that entail? We have a Slack that we run the group off of. So we had a dedicated Slack channel for, uh, we called it debt domination. I was instructed to run the challenge at a 101 level for people that were struggling. Now we have some very successful people in the fraternity and we also have some guys that need to improve their financial lives. So we have the channel every day. I or I enlisted two people to help me with uh, Bill Connell and JP. We would make a post with an assignment and we, we would require that you post and give some feedback on the assignment. You know, some things like laying out your basics of your personal finance, how much debt you have, interest rates, and then plans on how to uh, eliminate your consumer debt. Then we had a Zoom once a week, which ran about an hour and a half. 20 guys would show up. There were 65 total in the challenge. Uh, one night we had 25 guys on the Zoom and we throw it around and we talk and I'm available for questions. I'm available for one-on-ones. People reach out to me and I, you know, I had a Zoom with a guy last night for 20 minutes one-on-one just because he DM'd me. I don't even know this particular guy well. I mean, it's 160 guys. I know most of the guys. But if anyone DMs me and they want my time, I'm happy to give it to them because these are, uh, these are my guys. Are you getting into real estate coaching as well? Or is it mostly basic financial literacy and handling debt and leverage? I talk about real estate. I try to let the guys know how, how much how it's done for my life. And uh, I want them to see the benefits, but not too many people are too actionable about real estate specifically in the group. What were some of the reasons you achieved some really great outcomes from that financial challenge? Men really need other men. We think that we don't, but um, there's a saying, iron sharpens iron. And here's the thing, your friends in real life, they don't, they don't want to give you the hard truth. My brothers in FOE will tell me when I'm messing up. They'll point it out to me and we're not trying to spare each other's feelings. We'll say, you know, you, you need to lose 15 pounds, man. You just gained it. And like, let's get on the ball. We don't want to waste our lives here. You know, we have one life and we're really aware of the unforgiving minute from the if poem. We better make the most of this life and we're here to help each other, hold each other accountable, make sure we're getting the most out of it. I wanted to walk through your early years. Did you come from a family that were real estate investors or did you get into it entirely on your own? Just kind of curious what your initial inspiration to get started in investing was. So I'll give you my background. No one in my family ever owned rental property. My mom died when I was six and had a couple of stepmothers. And my dad was a great guy, but he worked very hard. He was a corporate guy and he was away. I was always interested in finance. Like I followed the stock market when I was a kid. And I always had my eye. I knew I wanted to make money. But no, I had no exposure to real estate. I was a terrible student. And I want to emphasize that because my story with real estate and the message I want to share to people is that I am the most regular guy you will meet. There is no other field where I could have been this successful. It's like real estate is the path for the regular guy. So I failed between the time I started high school and I graduated with a bachelor's degree from a state school in Massachusetts. It took 11 years for me to get through high school and college. And I didn't, you know, not go to school any of those years. I graduated college barely and I got my first job. I was living in Staten Island, New York, where I grew up and I was working in sales for Nextel at the time, who was acquired by Sprint later, selling cell phone plans. And it was a miserable existence for someone like me, you know, dealing with the commute, having to get up and shower and be somewhere when someone told me I'd be there. It's not a life for me. I'm an entrepreneur at heart, I'd rather do anything but work for someone else. So I quit and I played online poker. I was playing online poker on the side and I was doing okay. I was not lighting the world on fire by any means, but this was 2004, 2005. It was the easiest time ever to play poker. It was Chris Moneymaker and Rounders and it was the golden era for poker. If you turned on the TV, Poker Stars commercial, Party Poker commercial, it was the era. So I quit my job and I'm like, I'm going to play poker. And it was going okay. It wasn't a long-term thing. But I, I was a little bit aimless and my father passed away when I was 25 and my mother had passed away when I was young. Fortunately, he did have a little bit of life insurance. So I had a little bit of a cash infusion. Wasn't huge, but it was enough. And even as a young man with being a little aimless, I had the wherewithal to realize like, this is my opportunity. I'd better not screw this up. I hit the books. And even though I never hit the books in school, when it came to money, I was happy to hit the books. 
all the usual suspects. I love Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I don't care what anyone says, but I've read everything. I mean, I've read hundreds of books. I'm looking at my shelf. Uh, I love the William Nickerson book, How I Turned 5,000 into 3 million in real estate. It's out of print, but you can get it used. I've read everything like that. Landlording by Lee Robinson, the Section 8 Bibles. And these are just all off the top of my head. And I dove in and I, I became obsessed. What was your first strategy going into it? So you had a little bit of money from the life insurance. What, how did you decide that first initial foray into real estate? And what was it? I didn't know what to do. So I ended up buying a house that I thought was priced appropriately that I could make a little bit of money on. And I thought I'd flip it. And it probably took me about eight months. I remember I bought the house for 360000 and I spent about 50 or 60 and I sold it for 420. So I made zero for my eight months work. And that was my first foray into real estate investing. So that was 2006, right? So you broke even on the flip, basically. You learned a little bit, I'm sure. Then 2008, you started acquiring rentals, it sounds like. Circumstantially, in 2006, I was living with my ex-wife and she was studying in Chicago. So I did that flip in Chicago. Then we settled down in Massachusetts and I said, okay, I'm not moving anywhere. Now I'm going to start buying rental property. I bought a four family in 2008 and I still have that place today. Now, interestingly, when I look back, I bought that one too soon. If I bought it in 2009, I definitely could have got it cheaper. However, I don't regret it at all. And it's another beauty of rental property. As long as it cash flowed, I held it easily through 2009, 10, and 11. And the thing is, I was able to buy more properties in 9, 10, and 11 because I was getting my feet wet with property management on my 2008 property. I'm not saying grossly overpay, but you don't have to catch the absolute bottom to do well. And it sounds like your timing could have been way worse. You know, had you got in, started really building your portfolio in 2006, seven, early 2008, could have been bad. I knew enough not to do that. And that's the beauty of the ca- cash flow has always been my guide. If there's no cash flow, I'm not buying it. As long as there is cash flow and you have a long term time horizon, uh, you can't get hurt that bad. I mean, certainly if rents plummeted, I would be in a lot of pain. But one of the reasons I chose class C rentals is I find it the safest place to hide. When the economy goes bad, the demand for my apartments almost goes up because you can't find a cheaper place than my place in Sarasota. Did you get hurt at all during COVID? Did you have some fallout from that at all? I got through really good. I mean, just maybe one or two like delays and stuff, but no, I got through completely unscathed. Looking back on it, what were some early mistakes that you made? It's a great question. Nothing is coming to mind immediately, which is amazing because I have so many colorful stories of interactions and stuff. Maybe because I don't regret, I learned from every mistake I made. Maybe I didn't screen properly here or I didn't handle this interaction with the tenant there as good because I'm pretty hands-on. I still am. I'm not as much hands-on as I used to be. There's always room for improvement, but I haven't made any real disastrous mistakes. I bought a couple properties that didn't work out as, as well as they should have, where if I chose a different one that would have worked out better. Here's a mistake. I took a lot of 15-year loans when I was uh, 2012-ish, 13-ish, just because I was very conservative. I've always been conservative and defensive. And I thought, you know, this is a great way to suppress my lifestyle and force my savings even more. So I have seven or eight 15-year loans that if I never did that, that would have allowed me to be more aggressive and I'd have 112 properties instead of 87 today. But you were still cash flowing. You were able to make the payments, obviously, and still profitable on them, right? Oh, big time. No, I mean, I'm happy I did it. I'm just, you always look at risk reward and the relationship to risk. And because I'm conservative, I'm not a little bit richer and I'm okay with that. Has your poker playing days, has that had an effect on how you view real estate in terms of managing your bankroll and things like that? has an effect on how you view everything. I try to explain to people like everything is a gamble. You can put odds on everything. Crossing the street. What are the chances I get across the right? You know, dating a girl. There's a lot of risk. You know, I've been married. There's risk and reward. Poker teaches you a lot about that. You have to decide in real time and it's dynamic. It's always changing. So I did love poker, but um, it wasn't the right path for me. And the lifestyle is not what I wanted. There'd be a lot of travel. And the last point, let me be very clear about this. I'm not one of the very best players. And only the very best players really, for me, would be worth it to take on that lifestyle and compete at the, at the top. So you've got 55 rentals currently in Massachusetts. How long did it take you to build that portfolio? How were you financing the deals? How are you finding the deals? You said you were doing Class C homes and rentals. Talk to us about how you're financing the stuff. I started doing burrs before the term burr was invented. 
just intuitively, it seemed like the right thing to do. So I bought that four family in uh, Ashland, Massachusetts in 2008. And I talked a friend of a friend into doing a private loan with me. So I cashed out all the money there. I have a private note. I still have that private note today. I've been sending them a check every month for 15 years. So I got my money out there. And then I bought, I think, a two-family and hold in. And similar deal. I have a private note on that one as well. Then, so I'm burring. I'm burring and I'm going on to the next one. And eventually, I ran into another investor and he was like, you got to go to a video bank in Hudson, Massachusetts. They will treat you well. And it's crazy. And that's another thing I tell people. Like, If I walked into 20 banks, one of them would have given me what Avidia did. Avidia started giving me 30-year fixed and 15-year fixed on non-owner-occupied rental property, which I had a very hard time finding before or since at reasonable rates too. And here's the other thing, and it never happens today. I'd buy a single family for like 150, let's say, and I'd fix it up a little bit and I'd rent it out for 1800. And they would actually let me pull like 190 or 200 out of it. Where when I go to a bank today and I buy a place for 200 and it's worth 300, they want to loan me like 170. I guess I got lucky. I hustled hard. Like I would knock on every bank door and say, here's what I do. Here's my, um, my net worth and here's my liabilities. And do you want to work with me? This is what I'm trying to accomplish. And I have relationships with a few banks in Mass, and I have a few banks down here in Florida, and I will knock on bankers' doors and see what they can do for me. Do you still have that relationship with Avidia? I do, yeah. I mean, I haven't taken out a new loan from them in a while, but I still owe them a bunch of money. You've got the 55 rentals in Massachusetts. You decided to move to Florida. You're in Sarasota, Siesta Key area. Walk us through how you're managing those rentals back in Massachusetts. I'm in Ohio. I, I fantasize about being able to take off and you know live in Florida half the year. Talk to us about how you're doing that for somebody like me who would love to be able to do, be in your shoes and do what you're doing. I'm so glad it worked out the way it did. I never wanted to hire a property management company. Just the inefficiency. And I know that no one's ever going to handle my money as well as I'm going to handle it or care as much about it. So I was always knowing that I needed to be hands-on. I needed to be efficient about it. That being said, I am not handy at all. So if there is a problem that comes up, I mean, maybe I can paint an apartment and I used to do that and I can mow the lawn and I used to do that. But if I need anything, I'm going to hire it out. I would have trial and error with, uh, so a tenant calls me and there's a problem. I would hire someone and some guys wouldn't do a good job. You'd be surprised <laughs> to learn. And I got ripped off a few times. But then one time this guy worked and I'm like, man, I think this guy's a really honest guy. I like him. And we had a good rapport. So I give him a little bit more. I give him a little bit more. And we built up this relationship where I'm like, this guy treats me well, so I'm going to treat him well. And I try to bonus him and just be good to him, be nice to him. You know. Long story short, we treated each other really well for a while. 2017, 18, I'm starting to go to Florida for vacations more and more, three or four times a year. And I'm not liking when I'm having to come home. So I'm like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? So I approached my handyman who I've had this relationship with and I said, hey, you already show apartments for me sometimes when I'm out of town for a week. What if I'm out of town for like the next 10 years? <laughs> and uh, he was a little worried. you know. He was definitely not like, okay, but we talked about it for a while. I told him how it would work and you know the benefits for him. You can make some more money. And also you're getting older, you do less things with your hands. I know you can do this. Here's how it can work. I moved down here in 2019. Uh, we, we have a FaceTime once a week and we text a few times a day usually. And he's taking care of everything. He takes calls for me and he takes care of business and he's a great guy. And I honestly, uh, I love the guy. That's awesome. So what are some of the challenges that you're having managing things remotely, being in Florida and having the bulk of your property? You got 50, you've got 87 total, 55 are in Massachusetts. What are some of the challenges doing it remotely? Geez, well, now that I don't live in Massachusetts, the challenge of Massachusetts is housing court because they do not treat landlords very fairly up there compared to Florida. And you get what you incentivize for. So I was, Florida has a lot of reputations, Florida men, all that stuff. And they're not made up. I mean, those are true. So I thought I would have more difficult tenants down here, but it's been quite the opposite. My tenants pay on time because they actually know that if we go into housing court, they're going to treat the landlord fairly. And Massachusetts is not. They're not. They're going to try to help the tenant in any way possible. Managing properties in Massachusetts has not been a challenge for me because I know how to do it. But now that I have properties in Florida, I wish they were all down here. And that's what I've been doing. I've been 1031 exchanging my Massachusetts portfolio one by one and then buying down here. 
Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination, wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. Nerdwallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Yeah, I wanted to get into the 1031 stuff. What's that been like? You're doing one for one. You're taking a property that you own in Massachusetts, trading it out for something that you're buying in Florida? Pretty much. My properties in Mass are a little bit scattered. And then I have one, a bunch in this town called Marlboro. So I'm kind of selling the scattered ones and making my portfolio a little tighter so it's easier to manage. And as I sell off a property, then you know I have 45 days to identify a property and six months to complete the purchase. I've been able to find reasonable deals I don't need the best deals in the world in the 45 days. I'm not going to buy a terrible deal. I mean, I'll pay the tax over that. But fortunately, again, you know, it's weird how life works. I play men's league hockey and I moved down to Florida and I decided, you know what? I'm I'm not going to play anymore. I'm over it. But I was down here for a year and a half and I'm like, I want to make some friends. I know how to make friends in a hockey rink. Let me go. I join a team. The first texts go around and I have a guy's number already saved in my phone. Still Genexi, multifamily broker, Sarasota. Every time I went to visit Sarasota, I'm like, man, this guy has deal flow. They're very attractive deals. I never bought anything, but I had called them to talk about it. Now I joined a hockey team. Not only does this guy play hockey, but he's on my team. So I walk into the locker room. I'm like, who's Phil? Sit right down next to him. Six months later, he sells me 11 units. That's crazy. And now you've got a relationship with the guy and are, will you continue to buy stuff from him? As long as he keeps passing me the puck. That's fun. I wanted to talk about a little more about Florida. What's been the toughest part? You've had great luck finding uh, this guy, the, the broker that's passing you some deals. But what have been some challenges that you found moving to an entirely new market? It is. It, I mean, the market took off. So finding deals is very, very difficult. The thing about me is I don't really have a great system for sourcing off-market properties. Most of my property I bought has been listed. I bought some auctions over the years and stuff. But since I've been down here, all I bought has been listed. I'm pretty good at finding listed property that's mispriced. I've been able to do it over and over and over again. Now, I couldn't tell you that I can do it at scale for a long time, but for one guy, patient and can just snipe a couple properties a year, you can do that off the MLS. 
And I am a broker in Massachusetts and, and Florida. I don't represent other people, but just MLS access. And so that I could see everything, I got my broker's license and transferred it down here. Phil sold me 11 condos. And obviously, I've, condos aren't ideal, but there's a complex and I kind of like how they run it. And the cash flow is compelling. As far as deals in Sarasota, the 11 units he sold me was far better than anything I've seen in Sarasota in the last couple of years from a cash flow perspective. So now that I'm in there, they've put me on the HOA board. And now the word is out, this guy will buy your unit. So I've gotten another eight in that complex. And now I have 19 in that complex. There's 80 total. And I'll get the other 61 over the next 20 years. How's that going for you, being involved in the HOA? It's not so bad right now because um, I get along with people in general, honestly. Uh, it's not my favorite thing in the world. I actually, the only other time I bought condos is I bought a condo in Massachusetts in like 2015 in a six family building. And long story short, I bought the other five over the next six years so that I took over the HOA and then I got to close the HOA because I put together the building again as a six family. I don't like HOAs and I certainly don't like running them, but you know, it's you're weighing everything's a pain in the butt. So you just have to manage which one's the least of it. And right now, this complex is 15 minutes from my house. I already met a guy who lives there who does stuff for me over there, and he's cool. If you're cool with people, you can make relationships and, and make your life pretty easy. Like You'd be surprised how little time it takes me to manage 87 units myself. How many hours would you say per week? 10, maybe. It depends on vacancies. And obviously, if the vacancies are in Florida, I'm showing them. If they're in Massachusetts, my man Dan is showing them. Tell me about Dan Moore. How did you go about training him to go from handyman to handling your portfolio in Massachusetts? I know for me, some of the handymen that I've had in the past, there's no way that I'd have them talking to tenants, leasing, you know, signing leases and that kind of thing. How'd you go about training him? Dan is a special guy. He's just awesome. But, and he was a police officer before. So he has a good, like, he can diffuse situations with tenants actually better than I can in many ways. But um, honestly, it's not that hard. It's really not that hard. I'll still place the advertisement. The calls or the response will come to me. And I'll say, call this person, call this person. He calls him. I'll show you the place. They fill out an application. The application comes to me through Buildium. I use a site called Buildium. I look at the application. I run credit. I check them out. Yes or no? Yes. When can they meet with the money? Meet someone, picks up the money, signs some paperwork. I mean, it's communication. I incentivize him by you know my occupancy rate. The apartments are full. I'm paying you this bonus. If I have a vacancy, it's this bonus. If it's two vacancies, no bonus. Charlie Munger had that quote about, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. Everything is incentives. And I'm a huge Munger fan. Uh, the Charlie Munger Almanac is one of my favorite books. It's on, uh, it's on my coffee table in my living room. You said that a lot of your portfolio is Class C homes. Personally, I tried Section 8. This was a several years ago, but it was a nightmare for me and I vowed never to do it again. I had some pretty unsavory characters that, that moved in and they did a huge amount of damage to the, to the rental. But you seem to have a really positive uh, Section 8 experience, which is, I think, a main part of your strategy. I read a tweet of yours and it said, in a perfect world, all of my tenants would be Section 8. Tell us why you like Section 8 so much. I like Section 8 for a few reasons. It's predictable, in my opinion. Like As long as you know that you're going to have some difficulties... Then you've already accepted them. So why would I accept them? Back to incentives. Okay. One of the biggest things I do is I try to limit turnover. And that is such a fine line because if your rents are too low, you're leaving money on the table. And if they're a dollar too high and someone moves because of that, you've cost yourself a bunch of money and not only money, but work and effort. It is the finest line in the world. I think you want to be at like 96% of market is probably the right place because turnover is something I want to limit. Now, back to Section 8, they are far less likely to move. It's tougher for them to find a landlord that will accept them, even though I think it's illegal to deny just because of Section 8. Plenty of people do that. They're not going to move as frequently, and they're also not sensitive to annual increases. I'm trying to limit turnover. I might be very careful to do an annual increase on someone I think might jet, but on a Section 8 tenant, I have no hesitancy that I'm going to be at 100% of market. When I said 96% of market, I mean for like a cash paying tenant. I'm trying to make sure I get everything without making a move. With a Section 8 tenant, I don't have to worry about that. I want all of market. I can find out what the maximum they're willing to pay is and get it. Those are two advantages. Recently, I just found a program in Sarasota that is paying me an incentive every time I move someone in. So it's like I rent these condos for $13.50 a month. They pay me 2000 bucks extra just to move them in. I'm like, wow, this is great. 
I'm like, you should pay this to someone else because I was going to do this anyway. How do you handle those increases? Is, it some, is that something that you set or is it something that Section 8 tells you what, they're gonna, what the increase is going to be? No, they don't tell me. Just when the, when the year's up or like a couple months before the end of the year, I usually send a letter saying I'm increasing it to the maximum I think is allowable. Or sometimes there are ways to find out what the maximum allowable is. I've seen some sheets that tenants will show me that show their maximum. Do the Section 8 tenants have any skin in the game? Are they making any of that payment? No, they pay it. It's based off of, I believe, their income. But I have some tenants that pay $150 bucks for a $2,800 rental, and I have others that pay 1000 bucks on a $1,700 rental. So the amount of subsidy per unit, I'm not sure exactly how it works, but it varies wildly. Have you had any nightmare stories with Section 8? I've had so many nightmares, I don't even classify them between Section 8 and not. I'm going through an eviction right now with the Section 8 tenant in Marlboro. The guy, he can't even be bothered to pay his 240 of $2,700 rent. But other than that, he's fostering dogs over there and stuff. So I got to get him out. But, you know, people are people. Uh, Section 8, maybe you have a little bit more problems percent wise, but uh, you have plenty of problems with Class C on cash paying tenants too. So what would you say are some of the biggest risks with Section 8? Like I was just saying, the same risks you have with regular people. Maybe there's a little less skin in the game. Maybe they do a little bit more damage. But the trade-off for me is they also stay longer. On average, they stay longer. They move less. Limiting those turnovers saves me a lot of money, saves me time and effort. So I'm willing to exchange a little bit more damage for a little less turnover. And I think I win with that exchange. I wanted to get more into talking about the Florida market right now. I know you're close to Fort Myers. Have you, there's got to be a decent amount of distressed sellers down there. Is that a market that you're considering or checking out at all? So at this point in my life, I've been doing it for 15 years and I've always optimized for lifestyle as well as profit. And I'm doing that more so than ever now for one. So I only buy within like 15, 20 minutes of where I live. Because if I go further than that, I either have to work harder, commute more, or hire a property manager. None of those three things I want to do. If it's not within 15 or 20 minutes of me, I'm not that interested. And then another thing is, I mean, at the moment, I'm kind of out of cash. I bought a lot of properties in the last three years. So maybe I'll sell a property in Massachusetts and then I'll be looking for a 1031. And I have lines of credit that I can supplement. If I sell something in Mass for 500000 I might end up buying something down here for one25 in the 1031. But I'm not really looking to deploy cash right now unless someone comes to me at the condo complex and they, they want to sell me a condo and I can add over there, I'll add it. But I'm not aggressively looking right now. I think I try not to predict the market. I try not to time the market, but I can't help but thinking there'll be better deals a year from now. Seems like a, most of your primary criteria is basically as long as it cash flows, you'd be interested in it. That's how I've always viewed things. Is if it cash flows, it makes sense. Cash flows. And if it's easy to manage, and one of the many reasons I moved to Florida is I do think the next 20, 30 years down here is bright. I think the demographics show we're going to keep expanding. I moved down here and a lot of times I'm an early adopter of stuff. Like I'm, I'm a good metric. Like if I move down here, more people are going to want to move down here. It is the best quality of life move. I can't even believe it. I thought it was going to be good. And every day I walk outside and I'm like, this it is so good to live in Florida. Thank you, God. Yeah. I've had a couple of friends that from Ohio that recently moved down there and they said it's been the best decision they've made. They work remotely and they're like, why wouldn't I want to... Ohio winters are just probably similar to Massachusetts. It's not a place you want to be. Pre-COVID, I would vacation down here. And I'm like, the only thing holding this property market back is we don't really have a lot of Fortune 500 employers. But then once work from home happened, it exploded. And I wasn't surprised. I wanted to get into a little bit of about property management further. It sounds like you're kind of anti-property management companies. I've experimented both with self-management and using a property manager, and I currently self-manage my, my rentals. Tell us how your philosophy on property management developed. So you talk to a lot of people and they're like, I want to get started. I'm like, are you going to manage it? No, I'm going to get a property manager. It tells me like you, you don't really want it. You don't, you're not willing to pay the price. No one wants to do the nitty gritty of the property management. But if you're like, I'm going to get in there and I'm going to get my hands dirty. I'm like, yeah, my man, you, you want this and I, I'm going to bet on you. You know, property management is not glamorous. I enjoy it. I love the grittiness. I understand low income. I really do. Like I would have made a good poor person because I know how to find value and I don't enjoy spending. Like I have a couple of mindsets. I don't know if this applies, but 
I was getting divorced in 2009 and I moved into a five family I had. I moved into a one bedroom and I was so focused on financial independence at this point. There was a basement apartment and it was vacant and I showed the basement apartment, nice couple, and they didn't like the basement apartment. And I'm like, wait, 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 come and see my apartment. And I showed them my one bedroom apartment. They liked my apartment. I moved out and I moved into the basement. And this is the worst apartment I own and I still have it. It rents for $880 a month now. And I lived there for like a year. Have you always been a pretty frugal guy? Yeah, my grandma was um, a Great Depression person. It very, very much affected her. And she taught me, she, she would give me $5 for my birthday and ask me if I could stretch it. And I would just look at it that way. And I've never enjoyed spending on consumerist things. I always thought that money was for freedom. Money was for buying time. And that's what I use it for. I wanted to talk a little further. We talked about goals earlier and being the new year, but what are your long range goals for the portfolio? Will you stay in class C rentals or do you have visions of doing something bigger and, or are you pretty happy with how things are right now? Sometimes I look at people doing bigger than me and I'm like, man, why am I still buying one-off condos? I don't know why. But then at the same time, I've done really, really well. I've exceeded all of my financial goals. I don't need anything. It's a weird spot. In some ways, I would fantasize about buying that 100 unit. But at the same time, like owning all my own equity, not having any property or not having any partners, never having to ask anyone any questions. I'm a hyper-independent person. I think I'm in the right place. I understand Class C. It makes sense to me. It feels safe. I feel safe about the demand. I think it's very likely that you will see me in 20 years uh, showing low-end apartments because I also like the people. I mean, there's people that need a chance. I move people out of homeless shelters. And, and sometimes that is risky. And sometimes, sometimes I regret it uh, once in a while. But when it works out, it makes you feel really good. And I, I understand what they need. I understand what I'm providing for them. It's an exchange that makes sense to me. So maybe I'm in the right place. It sounds like it. I mean, it sounds like it's a good strategy. It's working for you. I'm in the same boat. It's class C stuff that I rent out. And same thing. I've got a relationship with a, a church that they put women who are coming out of prison through a two-year program. Once they've gone through the program, I'm buddies with the pastor and the pastor recommends the women that he thinks would be great tenants. And then I rent to them. So it's like a win-win for everybody. And they've been great tenants. I think giving people a second chance like that, it's, you know, it's worked out well for me in, in most cases. I read on, on Twitter that you practice what, when you show a property, you call it anti-selling. Talk to us about what you mean by anti-selling and, and how it works in practice. Again, optimizing for a lifestyle. I do not want someone to be a pain after they move in. I'm never going to try to make the apartment seem better than it is. I'm going to say, here it is. And actually, this isn't that great. And this isn't that great. You still want it? Because if you go in expecting things better than they are, then you're going to complain. But if I've told you like, this is bad. This is bad. What I'm offering you is this apartment exactly as it is for this very reasonable rate. Do you want this? And then if they can say yes, then what is there to complain about afterwards? I would rather someone say no, and then we part ways than be married to someone in a lease that is unhappy because I don't want my phone ringing. Does your Dan, your property manager, does he also do the same strategy of anti-selling? Have you trained him on that? Dan's a much nicer guy than I am, but yeah, he does it to an extent. I've explained the value of that and he doesn't want his phone ringing as well. So he might be a little bit nicer about it, maybe a little bit more skilled, but he does it as well. No, nah, it's a great idea it, just to kind of set expectations and like, this is what it is and kind of go under people and say, eh, you know, I may try that here. I've got a rental that just freed up and maybe my next tenant, I'll, I'll do that strategy on it. No, I was going to say, try it out. See how it goes. You wrote also on Twitter that you think that seller financing is the opportunity right now. Tell us why you think that. I've never done seller financing. I don't know that you have either, but it seems like something that I'd like to potentially pursue it. Why do you think it's a great opportunity at the moment? Uh, the high interest rates create such potential. There's people that want to sell their property and they'll take notes back at 5% and you go to the bank and they'll give them to you at 7 So it's a great opportunity, win-win for a seller to get maybe a higher price. Private notes are beautiful. I mean, I have a couple of private notes. They just were from sellers. I fantasize about being able to do more deals to seller financing. And my, my friend Phil, the broker my, that I play hockey with, he tells me about a lot of deals that are going down in seller financing right now. So maybe I get one in the future, but having a note 
that a seller writes just gives you so many opportunities. There's less, less fees to close the deal. Everything's negotiable. The interest rate's negotiable. The length is negotiable. The balloon. And then, you know, it creates opportunities in the future. Six years from now, you owe the person 400,000. They might need money real bad. They say, cash me out for three. Things like that happen. I mean, they don't happen every day, but it opens up a world of opportunity where a bank, it is what it is. There's also, you develop a relationship with the seller. You get a seller financing note and you treat them well. Maybe they tell someone else that wants to really fund your next deal. I mean, there's a world of possibilities with seller financing, especially with interest rates high right now. I feel like if I was 25 and starting, I would be absolutely immersing myself, just making sellers financing offer deals all day. I mean, in many cases, the paper can be worth more than the building. If you can get someone to finance it at 4%, I mean, think about that. How much is the note worth right now? So you said you do own some notes? I have a handful and I'm actually a maker on a note too. Tell us about that. How does that work? So I sold the house. I actually sold it to Dan when I was leaving Massachusetts because I wanted him to own a home. And I said, you don't have to bring any money to closing. I'll give you the mortgage. I hold the mortgage. We filed it. It's a real mortgage. And uh, he pays me. Nice. It works out for him. You get a payment. All is well. It's worked out very, very well because I mean, since I moved, properties appreciated very much. So I feel good that I've been able to make an impact that way too. And it's a win-win situation. I don't need to have it all. It's a fair deal. Jeff, I wanted to do a deep dive into the poem If by Rudyard Kipling. You wrote a fantastic thread explaining why the poem's not only a great guide to life, but a fantastic way to learn mental toughness in general. I had a therapist in my mid-20s that upon completion of our work together, he read me that poem and it's always meant a lot to me. So would you be willing to read If to us and then we will unpack it a little further once you're finished? Absolutely. I would love to. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting, Or being lied about, don't deal in lies. Or being hated, don't give way to hating. And yet, don't look too good, nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master. If you can think and not make thought your aim. If you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. If you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools. Or watch the things you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue or walk with kings nor lose the common touch. If neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And which is more, you'll be a man, my son. I get chills reading it, honestly. I can tell. It's great stuff. So let's go into it. Get a whole thread on it. What are some of the key points? Holy cow, Twitter in general. So I decided to, to try to grow a following and kind of get out there on Twitter. I've been a very private person for a long time, but working with the Fraternity of Excellence and becoming a mentor and, and sharing my message and seeing that people want to hear my message, I've finally been convinced, okay, I'm going to go out and I'm going to talk on Twitter. I made a thread about the poem and really emphasized the mental toughness. You know, there's so many great lessons, emotional control. If you can keep your head about you when all are losing it, blaming you, you can't let that affect you. I mean, you need to be the oak tree. That is a a great analogy for what you want to be as a man. You want to be steady. You know, you feel the wind, but you don't get knocked off balance. You know the truth. You know, when people are doubting you, you must stay strong. If you can wait and not be tired of waiting, you know, you need patience in this life. You can't be running and reacting to every little thing being lied about. People are going to gossip and that doesn't matter. You have to ignore the opinions of others and don't look too good and talk too wise. Stay humble. Dreams. If you cannot make dreams your master, you want to think big, but you also don't just want to navel gaze. You want to get to action. It's about what you do. And then, you know, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same, there's a lot of highs and lows in life. And if you want to be emotional and chase them all, that's not, that's not what you want to be. That's not a man. 
The man is emotionally steady and reliable, and he's there. One of my favorites is uh, if you can make a heap of all your winnings and risk it on a turn of pitch and toss. When I was a kid, I didn't get this part because I used to read this poem and I was a kid and I was like, man, that, that's not really respecting risk, but that's not the point. The point is you go for it. It doesn't mean be reckless. It just means you go for it. And when you go for it, you accept the outcome. You don't cry about it. No one wants to hear it. Like if you lose, it's okay. I mean, tell your brothers, tell your brothers in the fraternity of excellence. Don't cry about it to your wife and, and don't, don't cry about it to a stranger because um, it's just an admirable trait. You can let it out there. You can go for it and you can lose and you dust yourself off again and you get back at it. Suck it up. No complaining. I love it. And then, you know, I'll cut to the end, the unforgiving minute. I mean, that's what it's all about. That's this life. And unfortunately, I see a lot of people that don't care about the unforgiving minute and I'm very aware of it. You know, my mom died when I was six and my dad when I was 25 and every day I'm blessed with. I want to make something of it. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. I think when you're touched by mortality at such a young age. I mean, you lost your parents at a really young age, you know, your mom for sure. And then your dad, like to lose your dad at 25, that's so young. I can't imagine what that's like. We're blessed with this life and it's so easy to cut on autopilot or get stuck on autopilot and just sleepwalk through life. And I mean, death is like the big awakener, you know, it's something to keep in mind. There's a saying about, I think it's a stoic practice called memento mori. Remember your death. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but it's such a good practice like to remember your, your death every day. Make something of your life. Do something. Thanks for reading that for us. I really appreciate that. 
you also did a thread on alcohol that that I came across. I think it was pretty recent, like within the last week or so. That's been one of my New Year's goals is to drastically limit the amount of alcohol I take in. I don't know if I'll do it 100%, but maybe that's the way to do it. Can you talk to us about your experience with stopping alcohol and the benefits that it's it's had for you? So the thread, I had a blast. It was satire. If you see me on uh, Twitter, it's uh, it was pretty funny and it got, got a lot of views. It's actually the most popular thing I've ever written. Here's the thing about alcohol. It's all about to thine own self be true. You got to know yourself. For me, I drank too much. So I had my last drink in 2014 and it was a great decision and I'm glad I did it. If you don't drink too much, enjoy. And I have friends and I will absolutely hang out with them and they will drink and I will not. After every hockey game in the locker room, I'm the only guy not drinking and I have no problem with that. Enjoy it, but make sure you're not lying to yourself. Even people without a drinking problem, they will rationalize things. You know, if you're hungover the next day when you should be coaching your daughter's soccer game, you might want to look at that. And uh, what I mean by you might want to look at it is get honest with yourself. What is it bringing to your life? Every decision should be deliberate, especially as uh, you're a grown, grown person and you're a mature person. If it's not an issue for you, you have one drink, you enjoy it. Yeah, my blessing, but just be honest with yourself. I wanted to talk about limiting beliefs. There are a lot of people that are handicapped by limiting beliefs or mental barriers that that hold them back from the kind of life that they want to lead or the kind of things that they want to do, the goals that they pursue. You've done, obviously, a lot of work on yourself as a man and as an investor. What were some of the limiting beliefs or mental barriers that you had to smash through to get to where you are today? So many. And you know, it's still a battle. It's an ongoing battle. I'm doing this conference this year, a live conference. And I have to get on stage with people I admire and deliver a speech. And I have limiting beliefs that I'm not going to be any good at it, but I am. I'm going to be good at it. But these are battles in my head that I've had. I had limiting beliefs um, every step of the way. It's hard to even quantify or like exactly identify what they were. I'm sure I had them in real estate that held me up, but I had pushed through them. You got me comfortable. You know, my shirt I'm wearing right now says comfort kills on it. Anytime I feel uncomfortable, that's a, that's a sign for me that this is where you push. This is where you got to push through. It's become an indicator for me that says it's time for some action. There was a photo of you that, I don't know, it was a before and after kind of photo. One from your early days, probably when you were drinking, and then one now. Did you hit a point at one point in your life where you were just like, God, I'm fat, out of shape, you I'm disgusting my own self. Did you hit a point like that where you're just sort of like, I got to do something to change? The drinking is a long story. I knew I should have stopped drinking when I was 21, 22, and I didn't stop until I was 34. So there were a lot of years in there. When I stopped drinking, I got very into um, cardio and uh, I started running and then I even did an Ironman. Uh, I got very skinny at that point. So then I, I shifted. I said, you know what? I, I actually want to put on some muscle. So I pivoted and now I still do some cardio, but I focus more on strength training. The fraternity, we have a competition called Physique Freak. The photo you're talking about is I won the last Physique Freak. I got very lean, kept most of my muscle. So I post that picture, my before picture, I don't look that good. And the after picture for a 43-year-old guy, I'm pretty ripped. So here's the thing about taking care of your body. And as a man with muscle being lean, it changes your mentality more than anything. I swear the world is a completely different place. I used to be invisible. And now I walk around and people want to have conversations with me. I'm a happily married guy, but man, I can't help but notice a lot more women want to start conversations with me out there. And like, it's just everyone, it's a happier world. People want to be around you. You know, I coach youth sports and I really enjoy that. And like the kids look at me and, and I want to set a good example for them and show them like, you don't have to be the dad who isn't out here and, you know, might drink and it doesn't want to run around and I'll race them and, and show them I can beat them. And it's just a better way to live. I mean, fitness is, uh, it's worth it. That's the one thing I want to tell a lot of my friends that, that don't pay any attention to their bodies. The unforgiving minute, 10 years from now, you're going to be 10 years older and it's going to be harder and you're going to have wasted the time. But if you knew how good it was walking around, living this life as someone very fit, it's so worth it. They want to be around you because you look like the liver king? I get that a little bit. I get that, man. Oh my God, the 15-year-old kids especially. I dressed up like liver king for Halloween. It was a hit. They loved it. I'll send you a picture. That's hilarious. One of my favorite books, I want to talk a little bit about books, is one called Richer, Wiser, Happier by William Green. He does a podcast for the Investors Podcast called Richer, Wiser, Happier. And he, in the book, he talks about the world's top investors and how they win both in the stock market and in life. I know you're really into the stock market and we're going to get to that. But he's got an entire chapter devoted to discussing what he calls high performance habits. 
What would you say are the most important high performance habits to develop as a real estate investor, as a man? And how would you recommend someone who's maybe, you know, at the beginning of the year realizing they want to change, go about developing better habits? I got to be honest with you. This is a weakness of mine and it's something I'm looking to improve over the next years because it's a major change for me. I get by on a lot of motivation and I throw myself forward and I throw myself into things. But motivation isn't as reliable as discipline. I know a lot of disciplined men in the fraternity and I want to be more like them because it's automatic. They get up and they're jumping rope and they get up and they're doing their lift. I don't, I get up and I'm like, oh, I should write something. And then like, I know I got to go to the gym and like, I'm just throwing myself forward. So habits are, uh, my life is very open-ended as far as I haven't had a job in forever and I don't answer to anyone and I just respond to what's necessary. If I have a vacancy, I take care of that. If I have a project that needs to be managed, I, ma- I manage that. I'm not the best guy to ask about habits because I'm still trying to develop them. Yeah, it's good stuff. I see guys on like Jocko Willenink. He's the Navy SEAL that he wakes up at 4.30 or whatever. I see other guys. There's a guy from Columbus, Ohio, Maurice Claret that I'm going to be interviewing. He was a football player for Ohio State. Same thing. He wakes up at 5.30 and he's looking out and he posts his, you know, he's got his little photo of his watch and he's doing it every day. You know, that accountability that he's showing, hey, I'm up, I'm at it. And you, you should get your ass out of bed too. You and I are really similar in that we both have a shared love for both real estate and the stock market. Stock market was my first love. I got into it as a young kid reading books and having my dad you know, make small little investments for me in a custodial account. And I understand that you spend a fair amount of your time on, this, on your stock portfolio. And I think you had a 33% return this year in a year where most asset classes were down. What are some of the strategies that you're using to outperform the market? And I think this was like the fourth year in a row that you've beaten the S&P. I went deep into trading a number of years ago. I just wanted to figure it out. I used to believe, here's a limiting belief for you. I thought the market cannot be timed. Everyone says it, and it's probably good advice for most, but it's simply untrue. I mean, there's plenty of people who you can point to who obviously uh, can beat the market and beat it badly and consistently over the course of decades and decades. So it can be done. How do they do it? Again, I hit the books. I hit the books hard. And it still wasn't clicking, but you know the the best books are uh, How to Make Money in Stocks by Bill O'Neill. That one is cited by so many traders as the rich dad poor dad of short term trading. He's the Investors Business Daily founder, but um, that book was was good. It didn't. It wasn't like the Bible to me, but I read Mark Minervini's books, who's a, a trader, and I joined his service, which was very expensive. I went to see his live seminar, which was also pretty expensive. I went to the last one he held live. Now he holds it online, and. The interesting thing is I can't trade like him. He lays it out there and it doesn't suit my personality. So I have to keep looking. I joined a service by a guy named Brian Shannon, Alpha Trends. And he's really, really good. He's been at the game over 30 years. And I learned a lot from him. Then I joined a message board called Ticker Monkey. There's a guy named JT on there that runs it. And he is unbelievable. I mean, the guy is amazing. Every day, real time, showing how he's looking at it, explaining what he's doing. And I just watch them. And there's also a lot of other savages on that board that are talking. I don't do it like them, but I did learn like stop losses are a must. So I will take stops all the time and that's okay. But I trade very short term. I sell into strength all the time. I'm willing to take my stops. And yeah, I've done done really well. 33% in 2022. I was very satisfied with the S&P off 19%. That was a good trouncing for me. Your time frame is about a day or less, I mean, even less than a day, hours? From an hour to uh, two weeks, maybe. So how would you explain the strategy? Is it like a momentum strategy, trend following? What, how would you explain it? Oh, uh, man, I, am, uh, I couldn't even really explain what I do. I, I have to look at it with a lot of feel, which is it's crazy. I would never advise someone to trade the way I trade. And I probably wouldn't even believe someone if they were saying the words that come out of my mouth. But as I do it, Year after year, I must be doing something right. I've been watching the market since I've been like seven or eight years old. And I didn't have the knowledge of what people like Minervini were doing, people like um, JT were doing. And once I saw what they were doing, taking the stops is the most important. Look, there's four outcomes when you take a trade. A big win, a small win, a small loss, and a big loss. I'm taking the big loss off the table. All right, I'll take a small loss, I'll take a small win, or I'll take a big win. That puts you ahead of a lot of investors, certainly in 2022, because big losses came on the table that year and I wasn't taking any. And then when, when the market is really, really heavy, 
I'm not taking longs. And most other times I'm looking, looking for longs. It's easier to make money longs than shorts. I did do some shorting last year. It's fun. It's an obsession. You know, similar to poker or gambling, when I'm winning, I lean in really hard, but I hate losing. Losing is painful to me. So whenever I'm losing at anything, I run away. Instead of trying to double down and get my loss back, I just run. When things are going good, I hit it. When things are going bad, I run. And that's how I do it with everything. How much time are you spending on the stock market each week? It varies, but when things are going good, it could be you know, 15 to 20. So if you had to choose just one investment vehicle for the rest of your years, which would it be? Stock market or real estate? No question. No question, real estate. I mean, I don't know that I could trade all of my net worth. In reality, I only trade probably under 5%. You know, I think in 2020, when things looked really attractive, I, I put a lot of money in and I was probably trading 15% of my net worth. But there's no way I could, oh, I don't have the stomach for trading all of it. It's a be- another beautiful thing about real estate. I mean, it takes out the human element of mistakes. Illiquidity is a blessing. It's like the greatest blessing to most people. I stick with my real estate long-term, my liquid securities, I do short-term. I'm able to make some money doing it. I'm able to enjoy it. Uh, it's, a, it's an incredible game. It is like poker, except you don't have to travel. There are no minute-by-minute daily quotes for real estate. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, no, real estate, no doubt. It just it takes care of you so well. Every month. Page every month. What's your favorite stock market book? Ryan Shannon at Alpha Trends. He is legit. Been doing it for a long time. Gives presentations all over the place. I subscribed to his service for a couple of years. You've spent a lot of time, money, and energy on books, on courses, on coaches. What's been the highest return on investment for you? And when you are speaking and working with your clients, what do you recommend for them in terms of essentials for a high return on investment in terms of what they should read or study? I think it depends exactly what you're trying to accomplish. As far as real estate, I got value from almost everything. I'm very skeptical. So I don't sign up for coaches that aren't legit. I'm able to filter them out. I probably filter out people that are legit because I'm just extremely skeptical. Like if you show me anything that makes me not trust you, we're done. At the same time, I got tremendous value in probably 2005 or six. I went to a real estate seminar led by a guy. And I'm not even going to mention his name, but he had gone to jail for mortgage fraud. And I still knew he knew what he was talking about. And I don't have to step over the line, but I would like to know exactly what he was thinking. And my my goodness, did he teach me so much about real estate? I think back on that week a lot. And I I paid a lot of money for that. I paid a lot of money for uh, Fortune Builders, the the company started by Than Merrill and Paul Sajan that flipped this house guys back in the day. And I was probably one of the first people there, like we would be in a conference room, there'd be 15 people and they'd be on stage. Now you go and there's 500 people and they're nowhere to be found. Anything like for a, somebody listening right now that wants to take the first step into real estate, what would you Read say? the books. Yeah, just I mean, read. reading the books. Absolutely. I mean, the best material is in the books. Now, if you hire a coach, they're going to hold your hand and help you through it. But if you want it bad enough, you can get everything out of the book. Uh, hiring the coach is kind of just like a cheat code to make your life easier. As you mentioned, I'm super skeptical of uh, and suspicious of real estate gurus and coaches. It just seems like a ton of them are just scammy and kind of prey on people's whatever, the weakness for greed or instant riches. How do you tell if someone's like a, a fake guru or the real deal? Or is it just a gut instinct with your trading? You're going by intuition. Is it something along those lines? I trust my personal intuition. But if I was advising someone how to look at it, I mean, how much property do they own? How much money have they made through real estate? That's a pretty, pretty good equalizer. It's theory, unless you're rich. Like, I don't understand. There's a lot of people on Twitter with huge followings. And I'm like, this guy owns three houses and we have no idea if he's going to make it or not. But they're speaking with such authority. It, it kind of is a head shaker for me. But how much property they own? That's a good metric. Jeff, as we wrap up today, I wanted to ask you, without naming names, who's the dumbest, richest guy that you know? And what does he do? That's one of my favorite quotes because that is my message, Ben. That is my message to the public. Like, you can do this. I don't want to talk to the super technical guy who knows how to syndicate and who's going to raise a bunch of money. God bless him. But I want to talk to the tradesman that wants, is thinking about, can I get that one rental house? Yes, you can. Like It is what it looks like. I needed to dip my toe in. And before I bought that four family, I didn't know if people were going to pay me rent. I didn't know if it was real. But then once I dip my toe in, I hit the gas because it was working. So my message is it works. It really, like if you can find a property that cash flows, you're going to do all right. Just 
you know, move forward and do it. You don't need to be a super genius. You don't need to have all this technical knowledge. It's one of the last opportunities for the regular guy, I think, in America. Jeff, I, I really want to thank you for your time today. This has been a lot of fun. I appreciate you sharing your knowledge, sharing the poems, sharing some about your threads, a lot of wisdom to share. For those of the people who want to get in touch with you or maybe learn more about you, learn about Fraternity of Excellence, how, what's the best way for them to do that? Best way would be to find me on Twitter. I'm at Jeffrey Higgins. Uh, you could go to the fraternityofexcellence.com. You're in good hands there. These are the best people in the world over there running, running it, and they want you to win. That's just for men, though. If you're a woman, you can find me on Twitter. Jeff, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Patrick. This is a blast. Okay, folks, that's all I had for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show, and I'll see you back here real soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.